Um, good morning, church. It's a privilege uh, to be sharing with, all, with you all today. So the sermon for today is entitled, Listening, Doing, and Submitting to God. If you're holding a bulletin, you will see that the title is different. I changed it at the last minute because the title was originally Constructive Communication and Conflict Management. And my husband, Peter, felt that that sounded more like a workshop than a sermon title. Uh, but in any case, we will be um, taking a look at how God is instructing us in the area of being in relationship. So we are in the middle of the Flourishing Relationship Sermon Series, focusing on the primal questions that Pastor Wade has brought us over the last several weeks. And then Erica also talked about our need and our longing to be seen by God and by others. And today, my focus is really on looking at relationships. Um, and the idea is the primal questions um, and need, can, the primal questions can and need to be viewed through the lens of our relationships, particularly the important relationships in our lives. So we want to look at what God has to say about communications and conflict management um, so that we can do what it is we can do on our part to be building relationships that are nurturing and strong and God-honoring and loving. So I think you all uh, remember this diagram um, from, Pastor from Pastor Wade's sermons. So whatever our primal question is, um, whatever our primal question is, it connects back in some way to our relationships and how right we are in our relationships. So if the answer is yes to our primal uh, question, then we are right in our relationship. And if the answer is no, and we're somewhere in the scramble, that also has to do with how we are doing in our relationships. So in Genesis 1, it's the creation story. We hear the story of how God creates, and then he deems it is good. And then in Genesis 2.18, for the first time, he says that something is not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. And God is emphasizing relationships for human beings, speaking to the importance of community and belonging. God designs us to be in relationship. And this is what many of the primal questions point to. Am I wanted? Am I loved? Am I good enough? Am I safe? And how each of us answers these questions has much to do with how important people in our lives, especially those from our childhood, conveyed these, uh, these signals to us, these answers to us. So God creates us as social beings to love God and love one another and to fulfill these primal needs. God gave Adam Eve um, to have someone to communicate with in a way that is not possible with his other created beings. Adam and Eve are able to have a level of interdependence at a spir spiritual, emotional, and mental way. And Adam is not the same as Eve. God intended unity and diversity. And yet we know from the very beginning that differences, misunderstandings, and conflicts can arise. God also said, insofar as it is possible to live at peace with one another. So how do we do that? Um, let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, when we talk about our speech and communications, anger, and conflict, we are very aware of our need for your grace, your patience, your uh, mercy, and your forgiveness. Thank you that you knew this about us and that you sent your son to be our savior. 
Thank you that he forgives us, that he accepts us, that he transforms us, and that he works in us. May your Holy Spirit dwell in and among us now. Teach us how to be peacemakers, to be quick to listen, slow in speech, and slow to anger, and how to be able to work towards reconciliation when we don't agree. In Jesus' name, amen. So communications, at its very basic, is about the sending and receiving of information. It sounds simple, but of course we know it can get very complicated. Um, there's a lot of interpretation that happens. There's noise, how tired we are, what kind of mood we're in, how um, distracted we may be. And then we all have filters that we may apply to one person or to everybody. This person is out to get me, or they're judging me. And so all of this makes it very easy for misunderstanding, communication, or sorry, conflict and differences to arise. Um, and then the other thing I want to say is we're always communicating, whether consciously or unconsciously. And once we put something out there, we can't take it back. So we have to be careful in what and how we say things. Today's scripture comes from James. Um, James was the leader of the Jewish Christian community in Jerusalem, and he was speaking to all the Jewish Christians who were scattered. Um, I really like this book because it's kind of like a New Testament version of Proverbs, really a consistent focus on practical application in the life of faith, how we are to live in faith, how we are to relate to other believers. So James 1.19 reads, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. It's a very simple, straightforward verse, and yet we know it's really difficult to do. I know I myself, um, and often am often not a very good listener, talk too much and get riled very easily. And then later in the book of James, from James 4, uh, 1 to 3, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. So I just want to acknowledge first off that I know there must be some among us here who might feel like we're in the middle of very complicated and intractable conflict that feels impossible to resolve, even when we genuinely think we are following and submitting to God's teaching, even when we think maybe we have sought out wise and godly counsel. And nevertheless, um, I believe today's teaching has something to offer all of us in our approach to conflict uh, with receptivity, uh, being receptive to dialogue and to try to understand what other people, where other people are coming from, even if we can't agree on a way forward. So why is this so hard? First of all, there are personal differences. Um, I will say I think I'm a person that is uh, quite open to seeing different perspectives. I like to think that I'm flexible. Uh, my husband, Peter, when he's not so charitable, he will say that I don't take a stand. Maybe it's wishy-washy. And he's a person who's very convicted once he figures out uh, what his stand is. And I would say he's a very principled person, but when we're on the opposite side of an issue, it feels to me like stubbornness and being very black and white. 
And so you could say sometimes I think of it as like a pencil and ink. I'm always erasing and uh, rewriting. And for him, once it's down, it's down. So an another reason it's hard is because of family difference family differences and how our family of origins did conflict. So we might come from a family where conflict was very open and maybe loud and um, expressive. And if we're in relation with somebody else who's not so used to doing conflict that way, it may, it may feel very intimidating in our face. And that makes conflict feel hard. And then emotional differences. So in primal questions, Pastor Wade has been talking about how unmet needs are expressed um, affect, or how they affect our emotions and our behavior. And it's sometimes uh, we find ourselves triggered, we may have outsized reactions, and that's a result of unresolved uh, wounds or, or trauma and our unmet needs. They interfere with our ability uh, to engage and to keep cool in the midst of conflict. So back to James 1.9. So notice that James first mentions listening before speaking. Um, we've all heard the saying that God gave us two ears to hear and one mouth to speak, and that says we should be really trying to pay attention much more. Um, but how easy is it for us to do that? So oftentimes we might find that we're listening with half an ear because we think that we already know what the person is going to say, or we're thinking about how we're going to respond, or we're just very distracted with other things. So the German theologian, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says that um, the beginning of love for the brother is learning to listen to him. So what that says is to be quick to listen is to love our neighbor as ourself. It's really about focusing in paying full attention and really um, trying to understand. And then Henry Nouwen, the Dutch Catholic priest, he says that listening is spiritual hospitality. So I really love this concept. He writes that it's about using our attention to welcome someone with our whole being. <coughs> so listening generously is about attuning to the other person. It's about seeing their humanity beyond their words. And it's really about cultivating a deep respect for a person's experience and connecting our experience to theirs. I have this little acronym. You'll see I have a lot of acronyms to help us remember some of the elements. And the first one, listen, is first let go of distractions. Give someone the gift of your full attention. And when we can do that with our heart, then we can be really invested in the conversation. And S is to show empathy, to really step into what a person is feeling and to be alongside them. And that doesn't mean that we have to agree. Then we have T, really tuning into the whole person, not just the words, paying attention to body language, um, to their posture, to what their eyes are saying, and, and, and taking them in. And eliminate E, eliminating judgment, is about coming to a person from a place of curiosity, really wanting to explore and know and not having a preconceived judgment. And then finally, not interrupting until we've heard a person's full story before we offer up our perspective and position. So after listening generously, we also need to be slow to speak. We want to be intentional and thoughtful and considerate to avoid misunderstanding and communication. And the best way to be sure that what comes out of our mouths is to be pure in heart. So Jesus says to the Pharisees, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's 
if our hearts are filled with ungodly, ungodliness, then no matter how hard we try, that will come out. Um, so I have here, actually, you can maybe watch, take the slide later. These are just um, instructions from the Bible on how it is we are to speak. And then I have a little acronym here, Hail the Power of Words. So Mother Teresa says, words which do not give light, to the light of Christ, um, increase the darkness. So we are called to speak with honesty, authenticity, integrity, and from a place of love, the way that Jesus did. So the H is about honesty and being true in what we say, not omitting facts or distorting the truth. And authenticity is coming to someone or to a conversation from a place of sincerity, of genuineness, genuineness in our faith, genuine in our, genuineness in ourselves, from a place of transparency and humility. I stands for integrity, and the definition that really resonates for me is being consistent in what we think, say, and do, so that what comes out of our mouths is consistent with what our thinking is and how we behave. And then finally, L, love. Ephesians 4, 5, 4.15 calls us to speak the truth in love so that we will become, so that we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. We want to speak from a place of kindness, empathy, and compassion. And especially if words that we have to share are hard to hear, we really need to be reminded to speak the truth in love. Uh, the third part of uh, James 1.19, to be slow to anger. Um, we are instructed to be slow to anger. The American theologian R.C. Sproul, he writes that anger itself is not sinful, but we need to look uh, or we need to show self-control. So one thing that often happens between Peter and I is that he collects me in his car from my office, from the MTR station, from the supermarket. And it's hard to get the timing exactly right. So sometimes he's circling around. Sometimes he has to find an illegal place to wait. Um, and then he sometimes gets chased off by the police. And so by the time I meet him, uh, he's sometimes irritated. I understand rightly so. Uh, but that might come out in the way that we greet each other. And so if I get what I feel is an angry or hostile tone, it's very easy for me to respond in kind or to go into withdrawn silence. And these are not being slow to anger. Um, what can we do? So how are we to deal with anger without causing destruction? Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a Vietnamese monastic and sometimes referred to as the father of mindfulness, he talks about slowing down and connecting to the breath. OK, I'll give you another acronym now. And this is about how um, to slow down before we react in anger. How do we respond instead? So P is just simply to pause and stop before something comes out. And E is to exhale. And with exhaling, we can sigh and then inhale. And what um, exhaling does is it increases, or sorry, in, inhaling increases the heart rate. With exhaling, we uh, slow down the heart rate and we dampen our nervous system response. And when we do that, we can also pray. I'll um, say more about that in a minute. And then A um, is accept, acknowledge, and allow. And that is just accepting the situation for what it is. It doesn't mean we have to be happy for it, about it. It just means we make space to allow room for the experience 
um, and the feelings in a non-judgmental way and accept what is. Then C is about choosing how to respond. And we can choose to respond with compassion for the other person, compassion for ourselves. And then finally, after we've done this, E is to engage. Back to engaging with the person or the situation or with life, it might be then about choosing to have a difficult conversation. Maybe it's about putting in a boundary in place or choosing to overlook something, but thinking about how to respond um, in our anger, focusing on a rela the relationship. So I want to introduce you to something called the breath prayer. Sometimes this is also referred to as the Jesus prayer. Early Christian monks, they went out into the desert to try to, to practice being fully present with God. They wanted to cultivate this ability to pray without ceasing, like Paul writes in Thessalonians, and they found the breath was a powerful companion to do this. Our breath is the first thing we do when we uh, come into life, and it's the last thing we do at the instant we die. And in the Bible, the original languages of the Bible are Hebrew and Greek. The word for spirit can also be translated as the word for breath. So in addition to being essential for our physical existence, our breath can also be a source of spiritual nourishment. So again, we use our breath to slow down our nervous system, dampen our stress response. And when we attach that to a phrase that focuses us on Christ, then what we can do is make room for God to come into our body, a holistic way of connecting our body, mind, and soul to the presence of Christ. So it's really simple. We choose a phrase. The most common one associated with the Jesus prayer is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And we just repeat the phrase on the inhale, the first half, and um, the second part on the exhale. And we do this to enter into communion with God. Uh, and we can do it as a meditative prayer. We can also do it as a way to calm down when we're angry, upset, or um, irritated. All right, so now the second part of James, the second passage of James we're looking at. So in the book of James, he writes a lot about conflict. There's work conflict, where the rich are trying to hold back the wages from the poor. There are leadership and church conflicts, where people are jostling for authority and teaching positions. And then there are personal conflicts, where people are speaking evil and slandering each other. And James says that the conflicts come from the desires that battle within us. So while it is possible that there's one side that is uh, only one side that's wrong in a conflict, the reality is oftentimes there is sin on our part as well. And like Adam and Eve, we have a natural tendency to like to blame others, to blame God for our problems and to minimize personal responsibility. So we'll blame our spouses, we will blame our parents or our children, our coworkers or our bosses, we'll blame our fellow churchgoers or our friends. And as a couples therapist, sometimes I really have difficulty even starting a conversation towards reconciliation because the sides are just too focused on pointing out each other's faults. Because of our selfish nature, we will tend to exaggerate the responsibility of others and be blind to our own. And in Matthew, it says to take the plank out of our own eye before we look at the sin of the other. We also need to be battling the sin in our own hearts. We might place ourselves, maybe unknowingly sometimes, at the center of the universe. It's about what I believe. It's what I want. It's what I think is right and just and best. So we want someone else to respect our position or our belief, 
and when they don't, we fight to bend them to our will. Or, we, when, we, or when we want someone to step up in responsibility to lessen our burden, we get very critical when they don't uh, conform to the way we want them to be and meet our standard. So we really need to be examining our heart and repenting of any wrongful attitudes that we have. And then we need to make a discipline about thinking about the other person, including their motives. Why did they respond the way that they did? Is it possible that they misunderstood or misinterpreted me? Or maybe are they reacting to something that has nothing to do with me, maybe something in their past? So when we can look from the other person's perspective, it makes it easier for us to be empathic toward them. Ephesians 4.3 says to make every effort to keep the unity in the spirit, in the uh, unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then Jesus, uh, James goes on um, to address two deficient types of prayer. So the first is the lack of a prayer life. We do not ask. And when we're in the middle of conflict, it's oftentimes that we're very active with trying to explain our side of the story, maybe explaining it to other people, maybe we're trying to seek counsel, or we're looking up um, articles and research to bolster our position, and all of this may be helpful, but we sometimes overlook the most important resource of prayer. So maybe God may not move because we don't ask, or maybe we ask uh, with the wrong motives. So reasons for unanswered prayer. Uh, David Wilkerson, he's an evangelist. He wrote The Cross and the Switchblade, and he offers up these reasons uh, why our prayers may not be answered. So the first is that we're not asking in accordance with God's will. And then the second is what's referred to here. We're asking with requests designed to fulfill our own desires, our dreams, our lust, and our illusions. Or maybe we're not showing diligence um, in assisting God in the answer. If I'm praying to get a promotion or a job, but I'm not willing to do anything about it, then um, we might not be praying in the right way. Or maybe we have a secret grudge, which is lodged um, against another in our heart. And we're called to forgive as we have been forgiven. So when we don't forgive, that blocks our connection to God. Maybe we don't expect much to come from our prayer anyway. That's about a lack of faith. And then finally, maybe our prayers aren't answered because the way we pray, we're basically dictating how God should answer. So we need to be submitting to God continually. The purpose of praying is not for our will to be done, but it's for God to be glorified and his will to be done. So our prayers should be about aligning ourselves to his will, not about what we think the way the course um, should unfold. So the things we can be praying for are things like humility and patience, wisdom and endurance, healing and reconciliation. Okay, so here are three approaches to conflict, and in the middle you will see what are called the peacemaking responses. Um, these are the responses that are commanded by God, empowered by the gospel, and what direct us to just and mutually um, mutually agreeable responses to conflict. And then what happens is on this slope, you can see we can either slide to the right or slide to the left. And if we slide on one side, we go into avoiding conflict or maybe denying conflict because we find it too hard or too uncomfortable. And then if we go on the other side, uh, this is about attacking or blaming or gossiping. And these are responses where the focus is more about winning than on the relationship. 
And so both of these responses, we need to be careful about slipping onto the slippery slide of. And, uh, and I'll just say there's a lot more to say about this. But this comes from a book by Ken Sand. It's called The Peacemaker, A Biblical Approach to Conflict. So there's a lot more on the responses if you want to take a further look at that. OK, so we can look at conflict rather than as something to avoid or run away from or an opportunity to go on the war path. We can look at conflict Conflict as an opportunity for growth. And what you see up here is a logo from a company called the Chaos. It's called Chaos Conflict Management. But what their logo is that I like, it's called Three Cheers for Conflict, an opportunity to learn, uh, to grow, and to uh, learn, to connect, and to build insight. Um, so that's a way we can think about conflict. So James teaches us that while the resolution of a conflict is not only up to us, we have an important role to play. And so what we need to do on our part is to be careful about um, focusing on the blame of others. We need to battle sin in our own hearts and then to build and bolster a God-centered prayer life. Okay, I want to introduce you now to two dogs. Um, if you, you can tell the portrait on the right is from a long time ago. This is our dog named CJ, who we adopted from the SPCA in New York in 1988. That was the year we were married. We brought this dog to Hong Kong. Uh, she lived with us for 17 years, and shortly thereafter, we adopted uh, another dog, a German Shepherd from the SPCA in Hong Kong named Sam, who lived for 16 years and passed away in 2021. So we had 33 years of being a dog-owning family. And I thought, uh, Peter and I thought, our family thought that was enough. It's time to simplify. <laughs> you know, we didn't need those complications anymore and no more dogs. So sometimes, besides relational and personal conflict, there are actually material issues that need to be involved, uh, need to be resolved. So we might need to make a decision about where to go or um, how to split the money or property or whether or not to get a dog. So in accordance with Philippians 2.4, um, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. So meet Cyrus, a material conflict. So a few weeks after um, our German Shepherd Sam passed away, my daughter, who was home during COVID at the time, and you know there wasn't much going on, so she found uh, an ad in Hong Kong Dog Rescue offering up this German Shepherd named Cyrus, a seven-and-a-half-year-old dog for adoption. And she says, hey, Dad, let's go. And I was like, we agreed no dogs, forget it. But because there wasn't much to do, the two of them went anyway. They came home. Peter was very enthused. He said, I sense that God put Cyrus to cross our path for some reason. OK, and I was not convinced about that. But they uh, convinced me, at least our helper and me, to go and visit the dog. And somehow Peter managed to convince the helper that it would be good for her to have company during the day. But I was still not swayed. Um, and pro Peter promised lots of things. So anyway, how do we resolve conflict? So here's something called the pause principle, which also comes from um, Ken Sand's book on the peacemaker. And the idea is that we want to use a combination of love and wisdom. The first step is prepare. And in a godly approach, the first step always starts with prayer. I know that Peter does this. My prayer went something like this. God, please rid Peter of this silly idea of getting another dog, OK? <laughs> Then the next step is affirm relationships. So 
some, in a conflict, there are always people and there's an issue. And mostly we focus on the issue. Um, but sometimes with my couples, I will say, what do you care more about, the relationship or the issue or winning? So when we can affirm relationships, that helps to soften our approach when we're dealing with another party negotiating. And then you is understand interest. And this is, of course, uh, we know our interest. We know our position very well. But this is about understanding and respecting the position of the other person. And I know in Peter's case, he's an aging guy. He sees this aging dog, you know, and he felt this real kinship, um, <laughs> this real kinship to him. Like, okay. And for me, my objective is I needed a simpler life. I'm ready for, you know, a season of not owning dogs. But Beyond the get the dog or don't get the dog issue, you know, it's about searching for creative solutions and then evaluating um, the possibilities objectively and reasonably. I think we were um, trying to do that. And so uh, we thought about, okay, well, how would this work if it really were to happen? He agreed to take on lots of responsibilities. Um, and in the end, the result was, I'm gonna guess you know we got the dog. And in my mind, what it came down to honestly is, I think Peter wanted that dog much more than I didn't want the dog. That was how I saw it. And so the relationship, you know, it was worth um, elevating in that way. If you talk to him, I, I don't know if he's here today, I think he is somewhere, um, he will say, that it was God's will for us to have this dog and I submitted to it. So that's kind of the way he will tell the story. Okay, so here is a recent and rare occurrence of me walking the dog. So that's a very simple conflict. And I know that not all conflicts are like this that are so easily resolvable. And actually in couples counseling, we talk about how something like 29 or 30%, I'll get you the backup if you wanna know, 30% of conflict is resolvable between couples, and 69% of conflict is what's called perpetual or gridlock conflict, which means that the issues will come up again and again. So it's not about finding the solution. It's more about remaining in active dialogue, respecting the other party, and then finding ways to move a step forward. Um, so that's really what I want to point out here, and two practices that are really important in that. Um, there's a lot of information, we won't get into it, but it's about apology and forgiveness, because inevitably in conflict, there is relationship injury and rupture, and we have to do repair. And especially for forgiveness, if we feel we've been very wronged, it's hard to do, maybe we feel like we can't do it on our own strength, and this is when we really have to look um, to Jesus to help us remember how much we have been forgiven to ask to not do it on our own strength. Okay, so I wanna end with saying, um, it's always our move to repair relationship. In Matthew, Jesus teaches us that we need to love our neighbor as ourself. So in Matthew 5, it says, if your brother has done something against you, go to him. And then in Matthew 18, it says, if you have something against your brother, Go to him. So Christians are responsible for the process of reconciliation. It doesn't matter who started it. Um, the conflict might not be solvable in our human strength, but we're still called to be peacemakers and to be engaging in dialogue that is authentic and loving and God-honoring. So two weeks ago, um, Erica invited each of us to be a stone catcher and I want to extend that same invitation to us today. This time we can 
consider whether we need to catch a stone that maybe somebody is throwing at us, or maybe we need to put down a stone that we're, we want to throw at someone else, or maybe we need to catch the stone in the middle of two parties who are at conflict to be a peacemaker. Or it might also be that for, uh, the stone can represent forgiveness of someone that we're really finding difficult to forgive. Jesus invites us to lay down our stones as we remember that through the blood of Christ, we are forgiven and redeemed. And if you want to come up and take a stone and not leave it at the foot of the cross, that is also okay. We would just invite you to pick up a stone and use it to represent whatever can help you, help to connect you to God. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you, Lord, you know that we desire fulfilling, flourishing, God-honoring relationships. Teach us to use conflict as an opportunity to demonstrate the power and love of Jesus. When we are able to look at the cross and remember that it is through the blood of Christ we are forgiven, may we seek to be peacemakers with those around us and to live in unity with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>